You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's open in prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word every day. On the mornings that we have an opportunity to dig into it, we're especially grateful. And so this morning as we study your word, we want to hear, we ask you that we might hear from your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we read it and meditate upon it, might you use it in our lives to expand us into becoming more like Christ, working out our salvation in fear and trembling so that we might be a a beacon to the world to show that Christ is the way. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we finished off last week at verse 17. If you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not ever, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Paul was, was admonishing the Corinthians again about their improper use of one of the sign gifts, the gift of tongues. And, uh, So he'll continue through that, but he's going to give some instruction, uh, some actual pin this to your refrigerator instructions. And did they have refrigerators back then? Probably not. That's, you know, there it is. Technology saved us, yeah. They didn't have a refrigerator to pin these these lists to. So let's let's start by reading 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to read um, 15 through about... uh, how far will we get? Let me look real quick. Jim asked if I was going to use my new tablet this morning, but I don't have the unbreakable cover for it yet. I want to take a chance. So we're going to read 15 through 34, through 33. Speaking of, Paul was saying, if I pray in a tongue, if for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And he says, what is the outcome then? I shall pray with the spirit, and I shall pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the spirit, and I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If, therefore, the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will... And so he will fawn his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the, by two or at the most 
three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn, and all may be exhorted. And, if the, spir and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So Paul is continuing his, <clears throat> excuse me, his admonition of the Corinthians as they <clears throat> just seem to have a, a propensity for misusing and misapplying the teachings that he gave them years earlier. And he, we have to understand this, we're not talking about like the, the, the epistle to the Thessalonians where Paul lifts that church up as an example to all the Macedonians, to an entire country, essentially. This is a church where he has had to bring admonition after admonition. And we have to keep that in mind as we're looking at, yes, the, the sign gift of tongues was an important gift at the time of the establishment of the Word of God as the final arbiter and the final um, authoritative place that we go to for our teaching. But at the time, the sign gift of tongues was necessary and it was important, but it was being terribly misused. It was being used as a, a method of showmanship. It was being used much the same way it had been used as a pagan expression of religion at the time, where people would fall into ecstatic speakings and utterances and no one knew what they were talking about and there was no interpretation, but everybody around just assumed that person must really be in connection with the gods because they're slobbering, they're falling all over the place, and they're making weird noises. Today we call that choking, yeah, Heimlich maneuver may be necessary, but, and I shouldn't joke. It, it, again, the, the point Paul is making in all of this is that this is a needful sign gift at the time, and you are, are fouling it up so bad that you're driving people away. You're driving people away. So he says, I thank God, I speak in tongues more than you all. Now, Paul, almost as a reminder to the Corinthians that he does recognize the true gift of tongues, and in fact, he has exercised that gift himself. Paul thanks God that he has the gift. Notice how this follows after he had just told the Corinthians not to use the gift of tongues in public worship to give thanks. And here, his thanks here is in an intelligible language written down for our for our use today, so that others can see, they could hear it at the time, they could say amen to it. And here he uses the plural for tongues, so he's no longer speaking hypothetically or about a counterfeited gift. He is speaking of the actual gift given by the Holy Spirit, and he apparently had used that gift. We can assume that he had used it specifically according to the instructions he gives to the Corinthians in this chapter, but it is important to note that he does not give any anecdotal information. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Let me about tell you about the time I did it in Galatia. Let me tell you, he doesn't do that. He's trying to draw their attention away from it and lift up forth-telling, prophecy, continually. He continues to do that. <clears throat> he doesn't retail a specific time when he used the gift, nor does he write it down anywhere in his epistles about anyone else using it. He is trying to focus the Corinthians away from this gift as much as possible, not to denigrate it, not to downgrade it, not to badmouth it, but to bring them back in line to the biblical use of the gift, which at the time was to make certain that the gospel would get out to hearers who were not able to understand the language, the language, the glossolalia 
the written spoken language that that might have been being spoken in. That's what tongues was about. So he says, I thank God that I speak tongues more than you all. However, and before I get to the however, any comments about verse 18? He thanks God that he used the gift more than them all. He had spoken more than them all. So we can, again, we can surmise that God used Paul to be able to minister in his unique, inimitable way to people who couldn't understand the language he was speaking. Because that's what the gift of tongues was about, the sign gift of tongues. And imagine that you are a Persian speaker and this man is speaking to you and you know he just speaks maybe Hebrew and Aramaic, possibly some Greek, and you hear him preach the gospel to you in your own language. What a remarkable authentication that would have been at the time. So he says, but however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, 10,000 words is a lot of words. 10,000 words is several chapters in a book. Well, or maybe one paragraph when I'm talking. But in a book, it'd be several chapters. Um, he would rather speak. I, I realize that he's still speaking hyperbol hyperbolically, but he wants to get the point across of how important it is to make certain we're edifying everyone, we're blessing everyone. That's why I'm not speaking Spanish up here. Uh, that's one of among many reasons, because I can only count in Spanish. <laughs> and I may not be correct there either. So he says, however, in the church I desire to speak five words. Let's not look at this verse as a mathematical qualifier or a ratio for how many words should be spoken in a tongue at a given worship service in Corinth. This is Paul engaging in one of the favorite methods the ancients had for comparing things and assigning relative importance based on that comparison. This is hyperbole again. Publicly, Paul says he would rather speak five words with his mind or understanding than 10,000 in a tongue. He again uses the singular, referring to pagan gibberish. The word translated 10,000 is the Greek word from which we get the word myriad. It's murion. It's, a, it's, it's actually not a number necessarily, but it came to be associated with a number. It's just a vast number is what the idea was. It's an immeasurable amount. Paul would assign greater value to five words spoken intelligently from a biblical viewpoint than he would to say to, might we say, billions of words spoken unintelligibly and that only edified the person speaking. It is clear from these verses that Paul wanted the Corinthians to back off from the use of this temporary sign gift and engage their minds and study to show themselves approved as, the, as workmen who did not need to be ashamed because they were speaking words that edified everyone in the body and brought, glor brought glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. The use of that sign gift was important and it had its place, but it was becoming the sign, the method, the way. And if you didn't do this, you were nobody. That's basically what the Corinthians were communicating to one another. So he says, in the church, I desire to speak five words in an intelligible language with my mind than myriads in a tongue. Any comments about that? Brethren, now it's interesting. The Holy Spirit doesn't string phrases and sentences together arbitrarily. When Paul was writing this under the inspiration, this next verse has important it, it contextually has important bearing on the preceding and the foregoing, the coming verses. He says, brethren, don't be children in your thinking. Yet in evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be mature. The Corinthians had a corner on the market of being children in their thinking and 
magnifying evil. As if to add further weight to this teaching, this would be a clear comparison of childish versus mature thinking. It is clear that Paul would assign the childish thinking to the use of tongues and the mature thinking to the foretelling of biblical truth to the edification of the body of Christ. There are three words in this verse that are words of comparison. Describing how Paul wants the Corinthians to live. He does not want them to be children in the way they think. The word he uses is the standard word for young children that describes a young child probably from the ages of two to seven. This is a child who would not have the ability to properly reason to a studied conclusion about something. It's been said about toddlers that if they were six foot five and had the strength of an adult, they would kill everything in their way to get that toy. Uh, is that not true? That's childish reasoning. Um, and so Paul does not want the Corinthians to reason as a child, someone just born, someone without a mature intellect. He wants them not to reason that way. This is a child who would not have the ability to properly reason, as we said, to a studied conclusion about something, studying to show themselves approved. Paul does not want the Corinthians, nor us, by extension, to be that way in their or our thinking. <clears throat> it is not uncommon for children to put a high value on things that really have no value. Who can think of an adult in the Old Testament who had a younger brother who was just barely younger than him who reasoned as a child when he was hungry? I see nods. Go ahead. It's, this is Sunday school. You can actually speak out of turn here. Esau, I'm starving. You can, have, you can have all of my possessions if you'll give me a bowl of porridge. Dumber than a post, wouldn't you say? That's reasoning as a child, at, uh, at least in the Old Testament, at least the examples I was trying to come up with, at its pinnacle. So it's not uncommon, as I said, for children to put a high value on things that really have no value. Often these things... Often these are things that look like what they are imitating, a toy car, a plastic replica of money, or maybe a pretended ability that they see in comic book characters. <clears throat> Such were the Corinthians doing. They had placed improper value on one of the gifts to the detriment of the body. They reasoned as children when it came to tongue speaking. When it comes to evil, however, and he uses the Greek word here that translates into the, our, use, our word depravity, he wants the Corinthians and us to be babes or infants. This is completely indifferent and uninterested. He wants uninterested in it. Infants have no interest in wickedness. They don't even know what it is yet. This is how Paul would have the Corinthians live. To be an infant, simple-minded, uh, unlearned, absolutely unlearned, unable to even generate interest in it. That's what he wants for the Corinthians and he wants for us. With the first two disclaimers in place, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infantile with regard to wickedness. The Corinthians were experts in every wicked way. Paul then proceeds to direct the Corinthians to be mature in their thinking. That is full-grown adult and by extension, perfect heels. It, it's it's the, the mature thinking that is full-grown adult and by extension, perfect. Now, when I say perfect, that doesn't mean that at some point in our lives, in our Christian lives, we're going to be able to reason perfectly. But that should be our goal. Should it not? That should be our desire. Understanding that as limitations, the limitations we have will never allow us to get there, but it should carry with it a humble attitude, a humility understanding that, so that we're always teachable, we're always approachable. He also wanted the Corinthians to be that by extension, teachable, approachable, changeable, this would be the kind of thought would be involved in applying oneself to study the scriptures in order to become <clears throat> approved as a workman for God. 
And the Corinthians, uh, at, at least at some, at some point, had fun off doing that. Uh, and experience, ecstatic experiences became more important to them than the fixed understanding, the fixed word of God, which is able to be understood and by application lead one to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So any comments about verse 20? I'm going to get ahead of myself here. There you go. That's the next thought. What happens when you reason as a child and you come to some conclusions that you think are very weighty? What, what, what do they look like to a mature adult? Pretty blank. Pretty baseless. In the law, Paul says, it is written in verse 21. Now we're going to discover some things about tongues, about uh, the historical aspect and how Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood it and explains to the Corinthians. He said, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So that's a quotation, that's a loose quotation of Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. Indeed, Isaiah said, he will speak to this people, Israel, through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary and here is repose, but they would not listen. The Israelites would not listen. Paul renders this section of Isaiah reminding the Corinthians of the historical aspect of strange tongues. Now, the Jewish folks in the body would have understood this rather quickly. Not so for the Gentiles. It would have had to have been explained to them. Paul warned, Paul is warning them here. Isaiah warned the southern kingdom, Judah, that the judgment that had befallen the northern kingdom of Israel being taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. was going to happen to them as well if they didn't turn. He warned them that a people of strange language would take them over. The religious leaders of Judah had complained to Isaiah about his teaching being geared towards children. They didn't like the way he taught them, assuming it seemed that they were childish and untutored. They complained that he taught them order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. The intention was to give them rest was to give rest to them, but they would not listen. And so as they were warned in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49 as well, about the Assyrian invasion, as history records, they fell to the Assyrians, but this is only one of the judgments. Paul is telling the Corinthians that in this age, tongues were for a sign to unbelievers, as we will see in verse 22. So then, Paul says in verse 22, tongues are for a sign to those who believe, are, not for, are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign to unbelievers, not to, let me start over, not to double negative, triple negative, let me start over. So then, tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Specifically, tongues would be assigned to, then to unbelieving Jews especially. Unbelieving Israel would have this historical reference with the takeover of their nation by the strange language speaking Assyrians. They would have recognized it as a curse resulting in the loss of their nation, yet it was also a great blessing because now the Lord would no longer work through one nation, but would work through the church, his church, which is comprised of people from every tribe and nation under heaven. Note the words in italics, by the way, the second time is for a sign. Excuse me, referring to prophecy is for a sign. Prophecy is for a sign. Those are in italics. Those do not appear in the original. They were supplied by the translators. And as prophecy is nowhere else spoken of as a sign, I believe it would be more appropriate to leave those words out so the verse would simply say, but prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, 
And we'll get back to you if you have any comments or questions about that. If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men, that's believers who are still babes, who are not mature in Christ, or unbelievers, that's clear what that is, enter, will they not say that you are met? Unfortunately, even when used properly, the gift of tongues could be a hindrance to both the worship of the corporate church and to its evangelistic outreach. <clears throat> if the entire church assembled simply spoke in tongues, unbelievers would have no idea what was going on and would probably leave in confusion. Unbelieving or unlearned, that's un, uh, untutored in the ways of the church, of biblical manner, mannerisms and biblical um, lifestyle, Gentiles <clears throat> would not be able to connect the tongues with the sign that God had spoken of, and unbelieving Jews, especially without interpretation, might have a glimmer of connection with the prophecy about the men of strange tongues taking over the country, but they would have probably left as well because of the chaotic nature of the Corinthian worship service. The misuse of this gift was accompanied by chaos. It was accompanied by, might I say, silliness. Um, and people would see it happening, and they would actually, Paul was talking to them about what was going on. He was correcting what was going on. People would come into an assembly and everybody was babbling and, and maybe doing some of the things that the pagans did in the, when they were in an ecstatic state. They would go, I don't know what's going on here. Let's go get a hamburger. They wouldn't understand, so they would leave and the gospel would not be preached. <clears throat> Paul indicates that those who would come into such bedlam would, cons would consider the participants maniacs for that is the transliteration of the Greek word, which is rendered mad, maniacal, crazy, madmen, madmen, madwomen. So he's trying to get them back to the proper use, and he's actually trying to get them back to focusing on what would have more widespread use in the, in the church at large, and that would be forthtelling, preaching the word, rendering understanding the scriptures and propounding them forth to the believers and the unbelievers, if you'll explain why. Any comments or questions about 22 or 23 additions? Yes. That's an excellent question. So Ron's asking, would the kind of prophecy uh, at the time be things like anecdotal? You're going you're gonna to have a wreck on the way home and break your leg. Or we actually have examples, and I should have put them in here. Uh, do a word search on the prophet Agabus. We actually have New Testament examples of what these would be. And he came into one service and he bound himself up and he told Paul, you're going to be bound just like this. And that was a prophecy. It was a prophetic rendering. And guess what? It happened. So if the donkey cart didn't crash on the way home, guess what you're supposed to do to that prophet who predicted that? You're supposed to kill him. So I would admonish all of us who think we have the gift of prophetic foretelling. If you're going to do it, Figure out a way ahead of time to conspire so you can make it happen. Otherwise, you're going to be dead. Actually, we wouldn't do that today. But the point is, the point is well taken. 100% accuracy is what was allowed for prophets of God. And they didn't do the kind of things that Ron was saying some of these other folks did. They didn't tell you about what was going to happen to you that afternoon. They talked about the future of what was going to be impacting the church of God. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles at the time. And so God used the prophet Agabus to make sure Paul understood some of what was coming. Why didn't he tell Paul? Isn't that interesting? Wasn't Paul an apostle? He, God uses the church to advance his kingdom. Even the great apostle Paul needed others all the time to minister for and through the Holy Spirit in, in advancing the church. So the prophet Agabus 
gave that, I, of, that I'm aware of two prophecies regarding Paul. And they were specific and they happened. <laughs> so, which is really good for Agabus. That's what would happen. But it also wouldn't have happened the way it was happening in the church. Even when they were doing some prophecy, apparently they were getting that wrong too. And we'll look at that. He says, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, then will they not say that you are maniacs? Then in verse 24, he says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or untutored, unscript, um, new Christian, an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. But how would that happen? Is he talking about everybody breaking out into preaching from the word and referring to other verses and talking all at once? No. This is, we're about to get our refrigerator laundry list. And it's a good one. It's a really good one. I like lists. However, if the assembled worship service had people prophesying, that is forthtelling, there would have been some limited pre predicting of the future like Agabus did. But you'll notice in the book of Acts, it's very, very limited. It was unnecessary. The word of God was being compiled at the very time that this was all happening. And this is what is finished and sufficient for us to live our lives, we don't need to have the future prediction. How many of you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? I would rather trust the Lord Jesus Christ to get me through today. Just get me through the next five minutes without saying something unscriptural. You ought to see what the elders do when you do. The swelling takes weeks to go down. Just get me through the next five minutes rendering God's word correctly so that people will be blessed and encouraged. And then get me through today, and whatever you have for tomorrow, thank you. I know you'll take care of me. That's, that's the attitude that God wants these Corinthians to have, and us as well. So if, if they were assembled together and had people prophesying, that is, forth telling the word of God, they would just as the unbelieving Jews had when Peter preached at Pentecost, be convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. They would be called to account, and that calling to account would have been brought by what everyone was saying, not just one. Not just by one. Paul continues to show that prophecy is superior to tongues used here in its general sense. Superior. He says, of these people that would be brought to account, they would be convicted, they would be called to account by all. Verse 25 says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. How many of us have been in a Sunday morning service, Jim's been preaching, and we wondered if maybe he had access to the NSA files on our lives. That's the Holy Spirit working to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that each one of us can be brought back closer to the, to the model, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can, each of us, correct the things that are wrong in our lives. Each of us be blessed and praised for the things that God is doing in our lives. It's not all negative. It's some is good. We're out of Ecclesiastes now, so... No, actually, we were, my whole family, we've been talking about that. We were so blessed by that trip through Ecclesiastes. I think we were supposed to be depressed. Maybe we're weird. We weren't, but it was, a, it was an enjoyable time. The secrets of hearts were disclosed. We felt, we, we worshiped God. We praised him. We, we believed that God was certainly among this group, this church here. One of the remarkable things about the word of God is the ability of the Holy Spirit to use it to penetrate right through our facades and lies. Coming into a body where the word of God is faithfully exposited, it cannot help but result in conviction of sin and secrets being disclosed to the one hearing, even his own secrets, so that, so that he is so faithfully corrected. He is faithfully corrected that he, is for, he may have forgotten them, and God reminds him. 
um, I, I've actually had that happen to me um, when I, I needed to be reminded to apologize to someone that I had greatly offended years ago. And um, I'll never see that person again. <laughs> Wrong. They actually came into the store. And this is not a person I would have thought would have shopped in a redneck army surplus store. And there was no doubt what was happening there. I apologized to them, and, and uh, at any rate, we were able to get that right. It was, a, it was an emotional time. They, they actually started crying, which uh, and I don't know how to deal with that. What do you, you just... Please stop crying. We're all going to die. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't say that, but it was, it was an interesting time, and uh, I was able to, by God's grace, write some wrongs that were done and, and restore a relationship. And it was, it was actually, when it was done, it was wonderful. But while it was happening, it was like getting punched in the face by a, a Muhammad Ali. So the most effective and powerful work that is done in the church is a direct result of the Holy Spirit using the effectively preached word of God. It is not the result of ecstasies and experiences. It's fine to bring like I just did an experience in, but that experience that I just brought in is subject to God's word. You don't start with that. You don't use your experiences. You use God's word as it's directed to be used. And if an experience or uh, an anecdote can help, then fine. But don't major on those. Paul didn't. He didn't talk about when he spoke in tongues. He said, I'm glad I did it more than you all. Knock it off. And then he went into this cool laundry list we're about to get to. Clearly, Paul is advocating for a worship service that would minister to all, one that would meet the needs of established believers, new believers who are unlearned in the Scriptures, and unbelievers who had need for salvation, all of those. Prophecy satisfies all three of these needs, whereas even properly used, tongues does not. The limited reach that tongues had should have prompted the Corinthians to be more judicious in its use. Now Paul will prompt them to think about that judicious and careful action in their worship services. Now, we're going to look at a worship service as what it was like in first century Corinth. And why is ours different? And there, that question may pop up. Please don't ask that question this morning. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. All questions are welcome. The point I guess I would make is just because. And uh, we, we could come up with some reasons and, and uh, some edification reasons. But the point is, this is an interesting way that a first century worship service would have occurred. And it was sanctioned. It was biblical. So then Paul says in verse 26, if we make it that far. <clears throat> what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, what's he talking about? For us, Sunday morning worship. Sunday morning worship service. By the way, worship is not just the music. The entire, however long we're here, is a worship service. We are, by our singing, by our speaking, by our interaction, glorifying God, bringing attention to the Scripture, subjecting ourselves to the Word of God in everything we do on a Sunday morning. At least that is the, the design and the desire. So he says, what is the outcome, brethren, then? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. What's Paul's standard admonition about all of that? Let all things be done for edification, for building up, for growing the body of Christ, all of the body of Christ. Now, from verse 26 to verse 40, Paul will lay out specific rules for this unruly church so that they can get their worship services back in order. In the first 25 verses, Paul lays a foundation for the next 15. He will end this section reminding them to let all things, 
quote, be done properly and in an orderly manner, close quote. When they assembled for public worship, there would be singing, which the word song would refer to. That's pretty good teaching, don't you think? Um, most likely, an Old Testament song put to music and usually accompanied by some sort of instrument. <clears throat> but again, uh, there would be teaching, potential revelations, and tongues with interpretation. But again, Paul stresses all of these things. The singing, the teaching, the prophecy, and the interpreted tongue must be done for the building up of the entire body. Let's consider these things in our worship, that we are certain that our songs, our teaching, and our preaching are for the benefit of everyone in the body. Everyone here should be blessed, should be convicted, should be encouraged, should be praised, should be changed by what happens on a Sunday morning, should be, should be uh, to, and to the glory of the Father, to the glory of God, not for ourselves, but for the glory of the Father. And so today we have special teaching geared for little ones, young people and adults. One of the problems in the Corinthian church is that all of these things were done at the same time in a cacophony that bewildered visitors. Very little benefit would come from this noise. One of the primary responsibilities of every believer is to build others up. We are called in Hebrews to provoke one another, to provoke one another to love and to good works. Now be careful with that, Pat. <laughs> to provoke to poke, to prod one another, to love and to good works. To love and to good works. I'm sorry about picking on you there. I'm really not sorry. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4. You know what? Did I miss this? I did. So we'll, I'll put it up next week. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. And, and here's what he did. Here's what the Father did for the benefit of the church for the blessing of the church, for the edification of the church, for the building up of the church, for the, the individual believer to have access to the sustaining word of God and be brought closer to Christ. Here's what he did. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the fame of those apostles and pastors. No, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ for you, for the Corinthian body, not for the people up front to get a name for themselves. Waste of time. Everybody gets dead someplace. The church carries on, and the church carries on glorifying and praising and, and uh, glorifying God through the work of the Holy Spirit in individual lives. First Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are already doing. That church in Thessalonica was already an example, but Paul still thought it to remind them of the first things. Build one another up. Bless one another. Philippians, or excuse me, Romans 14, 19. So then, Paul said, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. You think he had a one-track mind? It's a good one-track mind. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Take care of one another. Figure out what others need and help them. Romans 15, 2 and 3. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Christ himself came not to be glorified. He did get, come to be glorified, but he did not come just for that. He came to be a servant to all. And that's what he did in his salvation work on the cross and through the resurrection. It should be also noted and said here that the, the, the tool God will always use for building his church is his word. 
This is the only tool he needs. I need a lot of tools to fix the front end of my truck, which has got some noises in it. God needs one tool to evangelize, to build up, to correct, to instruct, to modify. He needs one tool and one tool only, and that's the Word of God. And through the use of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit in our lives changes us. Later, Paul will point out that the spirit of the prophets is subject to those very prophets. At times during our corporate worship, our conduct, our activities, at all times, I should say, at all times, during our worship service, our conduct, our activities, and our ministries must be subject to the word of God. That is the, uh, the end-all and the be-all. Since the compiling of the scripture, the closing of the canon, and even before with the Old Testament, because it is said that the Bereans searched the scriptures to know that these things were true. This is the tool God uses. Verse 26, we finished with it there. Any questions? What is the outcome then if when you assemble? See what the assembly was? That's what I was talking about. Some would, there would be some who would have a psalm. We, we sing, and we have folks that do specials. There was some who would have a teaching. That's often done during Sunday school. Um, although I would advocate that during the service, the, what, the main service, there's a lot of teaching going on. Has a revelation. We don't need that anymore. The prophetic revelation. We have the finished, sustaining word of God. So the, the, the gift of foretelling ended at the end of the apostolic age. Ron. Yes, I do. I do. I do believe that that's a sub a subverse of the, a subversion. That's the wrong word. <laughs> that is a, a a result of that. Yes. Um, and haven't you read so, certain sections of scripture over and over, and you came to it a certain time and a certain time in your life, and it it struck you differently, and God used it in a way that He hadn't used it before. That's how this is like a gold mine. You can dig down a layer with the shovels, and you find some gold, and it's good. It's good gold. And then you get out the big heavy equipment and you dig down farther and you find some quartz and then there's more gold and it's richer gold. And it's all in the same, the same mine, if you will. That's about as far as my ability to use metaphors goes, so I'm going to stop there. But, but you get what I'm talking about. This is an unplumbable well of riches that God has given to us so that we might live according to his desire and according to his riches in glory from Christ. So, verse 27. Now we get some of the laundry list. We won't get through all of it, but we'll get through some of it. Here is, is as the Corinthians were misusing this gift, here is, Paul is basically saying, okay, if, if you're going to use this at, at its intended times, for its intended purposes, here's how I want it to be done. And you'll notice that he says, at one point he says, this is how it's done in the other churches. And you'll notice I'm not writing to the Galatians. I got, they got their own problems with the Judaizers, but they're not struggling with this. Paul gives, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most. At the most three. So how many would he expect in a, the most in a given worship service on the time when they gathered? How many times would proper tongues be used at the most? Three. I, I think that's, I don't know. Is it definitive? I'm going to say that it probably is, especially for this church who tended to misuse this particular gift. And each in turn, and one must interpret. 
So I'm going to kind of give you a little scenario as to how it would work in a, on a Sunday morning, but I'll, if we were in first century Corinth. Paul gives rules for the use of tongues in the church. He would prefer that only two do it in a given service, but at the most, if necessary, three. The speaking must be done in turn, one after another, and there must be an interpreter. Now, the phrase one must interpret is, the Greek, is in the Greek singular, which likely indicates, could indicate that there was one interpreter in the church for any who would speak in tongues. The clear implication here is that the speaker and the interpreter would have collaborated ahead of time. The Lord has given me a, a message in, in, a, in a glossolalia message this morning. Would you interpret for me? I sure will. And then it would have happened that way. And it would have been done in, in order. And it would have been for the edification of the people who didn't understand the language that was being spoken. <clears throat> the clear implication here is that the speaker and the interpreter would have possibly talked with one another ahead of time, knowing that their ministry for edification, for the building up of the body, would be used in this worship service. And as the tongue speaker spoke, the interpreter would then clearly interpret what he had to say to the edification of the church. Paul's reference to the idea that each one must do it in turn shows that the tendency in the Corinthian church was for someone to break out an ecstatic speech with others following closely behind so that the service would become chaotic. Everybody would talk at once. Have you ever tried to shout over people in a, in a mob? It's, it's, a waste. it's actually a waste of breath. Mobs are dangerous. Uh, they can be dangerous. I'm not calling this a mob. But it's not far from that when people are just breaking out and talk with no organization, completely chaotic. Paul later on says that it was chaotic, and he tells them how to, to correct that. But, and then we'll, I'll ask you if you have any comments. If there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. There's a period after all of those. That's how we do it nowadays. And let him speak to himself and to God. So, I've got a, I think I've got an, a prophetic utterance or a tongues utterance on a Sunday morning. And I come and, and the guy who does the interpreting isn't here. Guess what that means for me? Sit down and shut up. Do you think God goes, oh no. I had a message for him. What am I going to do? The interpreter's not there. No, not at all. At that time in the church, the proper use of this gift God would have organized, it would have been organized and done in a manner that would have blessed and edified the body, not just the one speaking. So what, what must have been happening in the Corinthian church was that one person would break out an ecstatic speech, followed by another, followed by another with no interpretation. This resulted in chaotic services and confused both the unlearned, new Christians, and unbelievers, and contributed nothing to the edification of the body at large. If one of the members believed he had a message in a tongue, it is clear from this verse that he must have sought out interpreter and finding one knew that he, and finding none, knew that he was to keep, that was his sign, if you will, here's your sign, keep quiet in the church and simply speak to himself and to the Lord. It is very likely that there were specific believers, and I can't say this categorically because it's not in the text, but you can, you can infer that there were specific believers that had the gift of interpretation, and when they were not present at church, church service, the tongue speakers would know that it was their time to remain silent. And I might also add, if they were there, and they said, um, I've been given no, I, I'm not, I can't interpret today. That's a sign. And, and a true tongue speaker would have taken that as his, his responsibility that morning to be quiet. And it wouldn't have bothered him. Well, we're all human. 
you, you probably second guess. You I know I thought he, I thought, but there's no interpreter. Well, what did Paul say? What's always been being done in the other churches where he taught? This isn't the first time probably that he taught this. He taught at Corinth for 18 months. And then he came back. He wrote back to them. Here's the things about my teaching that you didn't pay attention. Second time. Second time's a charm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I know. So Brian's pointing out that this identical behavior is happening in churches around the country today, in Bonner County, in Kootenai County. That doesn't mean we get on our high horse, stick our nose in the air, and smack them upside the head with a Bible, a big Bible, because little, my little one's not going to hurt them. They just shake that right off. No, but that means that as we have opportunity, we bring them the truth. And we don't be afraid to bring them the truth. If they're snowflakes, that's their problem. The fact is... So much of what's true in the Word of God is not being exposited today because we're afraid of the result, afraid of what might happen. Guess what? We were called to do this, and it's not in many cases going to be comfortable. In here, I can say that. It's pretty easy in here. But I actually was in a church like this and got preached at in a church like this, and we ended up leaving a church like this um, where I would hear people break out in language and I, I remember at the time I was a new believer I knew enough to know that this wasn't cool but I was chicken to do anything about it and I just put my head down and went oh I'd just be glad that this is over and it did get over and it wasn't I don't think it was at this particular church it was as chaotic as it was at this one this was many many years ago this was 35 years ago and uh, there was still a modicum of decorum even in that church there were believers in that church there's no doubt about it. They were, they were, the gospel was preached. I heard it. Um, but it was accompanied by things that when unbelievers or unlearned men came in, they would think they were mad. Just like 2,000 years ago, they would have thought they were mad. So if there's no interpreter, your instructions are to keep silent. We're going to stop there. Um, when God gives clear instruction, what should we do? We should obey. I think it's a good idea to obey. Yeah. Who cares what I think? The Word of God thinks it's a good idea to obey. And so, again, this is not something for those of us who believe, as we believe, cessation of the sign gifts, understanding, I believe clearly, that these had their place. They were important in a given time to authenticate the message of, and can you imagine the remarkable result this would have had in a body where it was done in order and, and, and <clears throat> the person would interpret a la into a language that others who couldn't understand would understand. They would be able to glorify God with the rest of the body. The whole body would be edified. The whole body would be built up. The whole body would be teached, teached, taught. <laughs> it's a new verb. The whole body would be edified. The whole, I said that. The whole body would be comforted prophecy was for comfort by the way one of the things it was for and so paul is trying to get the corinthians not not just to to knock off the bad behavior but to come back in line with god's word because that is what is best for his church that's what is best for his church and god will use his church to prevail 
on this planet. And it's going to be a wondrous thing when that finally comes to fruition. But believe it or not, it's prevailing now. It may not seem like it, but his work continues. His work is effective. And his work, through the word of God, by the Holy Spirit, will always have the best possible outcome for his, his body, the church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give clear instruction. And where it's not clear, you give uh, us the ability to uh, wait and to acknowledge you and to give time so that we might come to a better understanding of things. Lord, I am grateful that you are working in this body. Help us to continue to edify one another, to look out for one another, to bless one another, to convict one another as necessary properly. And Lord, we know that you are going to use that to the building of your church, to the spreading of the gospel, and to the glory of yourself, your Son, and the Holy Spirit in this world today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.